Welcome to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast, ClearCast, your source for security clearance, intelligence community, espionage, national security, and defense contracting updates in our exclusive interviews with intelligence community and government leaders. This podcast is brought to you by the National Security Hiring Team at Booz Allen. Threats to national security are accelerating, from expanding attack surfaces to global adversaries. They work with leaders across the intelligence community to solve critical challenges today while innovating solutions for tomorrow. Accelerate mission impact and explore careers at boozallen.com slash intelcareers. Hello, hello, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Security Clearance Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Keller, and I'd like to start this episode. Imagine you get a notification that $800 was transferred out of your account from an authorized user when you're the only one with access. So phishing attacks, online scams, and cyber criminals in general are becoming more commonplace but are also finessing their sophistication in the ways that they attack. Budobot is a veteran and minority-owned business that specializes in authentic offensive cybersecurity. They believe that by emulating real-world attacks continuously, they can go beyond traditional automated scanning and compliance. So Luke is the CEO of Budobot and is also a U.S. Marine Corps veteran, and he is joining me on the podcast to talk about all things cybersecurity, whether you are a user or a company looking to strengthen your efforts. So Luke, thanks so much for joining me. And knowing that you're a, so I I actually have to ask, what Marine Corps nickname do you prefer? Because I've heard a ton and also no nickname is an answer too. First, thanks so much for having me. As far as Marine Corps nicknames go, Devil Dog, Leatherneck, all those things, you know, I know I know you're trying to steer away from Jarhead, but we're cool with that too. <laughs> Love it. So you haven't been a CEO forever. So let's talk about the stepping stones in between your journey from the Marine Corps to working in the federal space. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, early 20s was in the Marine Corps and I joined as a radio operator, which is technically, uh, we called it battery operated grunts. Um, so I was the, the guy with the big uh, radio on his back and an antenna hanging out. So that was kind of the start for me in the Marine Corps. And, you know, through that and several different, you know, hops as far as different bases and different efforts that we were supporting ended up actually attached to a a civil affairs unit, um, which goes in and helps repair and rebuild governments after conflict. And through there, I actually ended up meeting a lot of amazing Marines. And that's primarily a a reserve unit. And I actually joined initially as a reservist, uh, but we were activated, you know, during Operation Iraqi Freedom and all that was happening uh, sort of during the time frame of we were going through MOS school, did a, a stint of time as a as a, an active Marine. And then once we got back to the uh, civil affairs group, I was working with a bunch of different officers and enlisted folks that were within the defense contracting space uh, while they weren't on duty as a Marine, one of which introduced me to the Marine Corps Cyber Operations Network down at Quantico. And that's where I really started to dabble 
in network engineering, security engineering, and just work in general in the defense contracting space for different companies. Well, and I know that joining as a reservist can be an easy way to gain a security clearance. So I've definitely heard that within our community. And at Buttobot, y'all are some professional hackers, and I obviously am not. I am the chick who used to act like she knew what she was hap- what was happening when she was trying to find some of these cyber folks. So give me some of your insights into the psychology of cyber criminals and the role of advanced social engineering. Yeah, and real quick, I just want to touch on, you know, at Buttobot, we're we're very lucky because we have a excellent um, depth and breadth of subject matter expertise. Uh, so even though offensive cybersecurity is our, our flagship service and continuous adversary emulation, we have a really big federal team uh, that supports a lot of different critical contracts out there supporting the warfighter, supporting different troops, different federal agencies, and all these folks have amazing backgrounds as network engineers, security engineers, cloud architects. And it's really, really amazing for us, and especially our, our red team of you know professional hackers and security engineers, because anytime they're they're faced with technology that they're not familiar with or organizations that deploy certain software, different technology, we have such a an awesome team that we can reach back to and and Kind of brainstorm with, which is really, really, really amazing. But back to your your question about sort of the psychology of hackers and social engineering and that whole side of it. So there's um, whether you're a criminal hacker or a professional hacker, there's a lot of the same innate, I think, characteristics. Uh, and then obviously, some if you're a criminal hacker, kind of starts to skew in a different direction. But you know, the biggest thing is problem solvers, right? Puzzle solvers that trying to figure out, you know, what's beneath the hood and how things work and how can you take something that functions amazingly well and stop it. Or if uh, somebody says, hey, there's, you know, a brick wall here and a steel wall here and you can't get through them. Folks that are in this field, they want to figure out a way to get through, you know, just like systems. If every system that's claimed to be, you know, the strongest and, you know, the best uh, defensive measures, uh, it's this innate desire to figure out, you know, how to get through it. And, you know, professional hackers and security engineers, they want to do that so that they can help, right, different organizations or different folks that they can take those exploits or areas of weakness and fix them, right, before the bad guys get to them. Then, of course, the criminal side They want to exploit either for notoriety or for financial gain or political gain, things of that nature. And as you're like talking about all of that, I'm a big Survivor fan and I feel like I'm just thinking about these groups on Survivor where like you're trying to essentially find the cracks within these relationships. And I just I see the analogy there. (laughs) But so the, the holiday season is behind us. But I know that this is an evergreen issue when it comes to like online shopping and things like that. So our, our focus, especially when things are getting more expensive, shifts to finding like the best deals online. But there's a crucial aspect of this that a lot may overlook, which is cybersecurity. And so people already shop online a ton, and that's likely here to stay with more you know, credit card transactions comes the risk of potential unauthorized activities and cyber fraud. So for example, I know at Clearance Jobs, we've written about sites like uh, TeamU or TemU, I don't even know, which was the most downloaded app of 2023. And many kind of still wonder if the 
you know, the mysterious e-commerce site is actually safe to use. So tell us about some of your cybersecurity tips that might not cross a person's mind, especially with online shopping. Yeah, so there's there's so much that can be talked about here. But as far as um, anytime that there's pop-up popularity in sites or apps, you know, especially ones that kind of come out of the blue, you don't know where this came from, who owns it, what's the origination of it. You know, I would tread very lightly with utilizing them. I mean, there's so many well-known vendors and shopping sites uh, to buy a lot of goods with or to trade and sell goods with that something new kind of comes around and the prices are significantly better and you know, things like that, there's, there's a little bit of a red flag, you know, not, not to say that there is something wrong, but you want to do your research, right? And that's especially the case for not just, you know, big sort of buy, sell, trade storefronts or, or large scale vendors like that. But if you're something was intriguing online and you end up at a store and you're buying something, even if it's a product that's well known and you're buying it from a store just because it's significantly cheaper, but you've never heard of that store, do a little research. You know, there's folks that if it's not legitimate and they've lost uh, some money there or they never got their product, they've probably talked about it online. So doing a little bit of due diligence can, can kind of go a, a pretty long way when it comes to unknown storefronts or apps. Well, definitely. And I know that you've also talked about with me previously, you know, using a separate email address for some of this stuff. And you can create one pretty easily these days. So just making sure to kind of like remove yourself as many like data points as you can, especially if you're a security clearance holder. And I know that, you know, cyber hygiene, having, you know, habits online to sort of protect your identity from fraud. And I know that companies implement training to help employees kind of stay up to date with this kind of stuff, like simulated phishing emails. But from a personal standpoint, what are some key things to keep a lookout for when shopping online with new or unknown vendors, others that you can think of? Yeah, so this is a, a really important topic. Uh, and, and like you said before, not just, you know, during busy shopping seasons like the holidays and such, it is truly sort of an evergreen kind of thing because we're, we're shopping online quite a bit. And the reason why I've recommended creating a separate shopping identity or, or separate email uh, sort of has two main goals with it. One is just to have an email that's out there that doesn't have your name. On it. You know, it's not your first and last name, you know, using maybe just your first name, if that's something that's really important. Okay. But if, if you're putting your first and last name out there, sort of the first wave of data that goes into breaches, um, even if they didn't capture everything, they didn't get passwords, they didn't get sensitive information, but they did get a huge list of email addresses. As you know, criminals are going through that, they're, they're not going to spend any time doing any research on email addresses that are like orange butterfly or red dog, you know, at gmail.com. But if they see something that says Luke Seacrest at gmail.com or, you know, other names like that, that's their first sort of target. They're going to say, okay, what can we find on this person? This looks like a real name. Let's do a little bit of research. Are there social media accounts attached to it? Are there other things? Are they a prominent figure? And this is just sort of that first way to just remove that. And usually folks, uh, if they have an email, you know, with their name, 
and they use that primarily for communication and things like that, that's fine. But then once you get into shopping and you're using it for, you know, storefronts and your email starting to go out everywhere, that's where it kind of becomes sort of potentially problematic and just creating a new one uh, reduces that. The second big reason, and this is probably a bigger uh, push for me when I talk to folks about it, is still today, whether it's consumer, just direct to a person or organizations, the most successful attack is a phishing attack. It's the easiest to deploy. It's the easiest to continue to deploy. And it's the most successful against businesses and people. And as you opened up, you know, getting emails about hey, you've got a payment that's overdue or somebody's taking money out of your account or somebody deposited money in your account or, hey, your package is going to be delayed or um, your transaction actually didn't go through, so you're not going to get the shoes that you just ordered, um, things of that nature. They know that people are getting flooded with that kind of email. And if you create a separate email to use for shopping, um, which I call your shopping identity, you can just pretty much assume you know, every email that's coming through there is phishing and just avoid it, right? Separate it from the personal email that you're using for important communication and just use that for shopping. And you can just catch it all in that email and, and just ignore it. Assume it's all phishing. If you get an email that says you have a bill overdue, don't click any links. Just go to your credit card website or whatever and log straight in and see if that was in fact true. Right. Well, and I know that I get those text messages all of the time <laughs> to my personal phone. And then you talked about social media. Like if you have a name in your email and you're using that for online shopping, they can easily, cyber criminals can easily find you on social media. And so, you know, some folks, I, the, I'm only active on certain social medias, but, you know, Everyday users are, you know, tagging photos of specific family members, updating, you know, statuses with like job promotions on LinkedIn. Some, you know, social media sites even include like tagging locations. And so we put a lot of data online for people with bad intentions to take advantage of. And all of this data is making it easier for attackers to specifically target consumers with emails and texts that you referred to. And I know, again, some scammers will actually pose as someone's CEO and text their personal phone number, if that's online, with something to do or click on because anyone can get on LinkedIn and see where you work. <laughs> and so, I mean... Yeah, absolutely. It happens with us um, and with me. And we, we do it internally within our company too. We have internal phishing campaigns all the time right. to, to keep everyone on their toes. But there are, and if we see it, we let everybody know there's a malicious attack. We've had text messages going out saying it was me asking me to, uh, you know, either give some information or, you know, click this link and hop on a quick um, Zoom, something really important. And it's, it's true. It's not that hard to go online and figure out just enough to blast out to certain folks. Right. And so what would be your tips for not necessarily online shopping, which isn't sort of broadcasted to followers, quote unquote, what would be your tips for operating on social media? Yes. Yeah, so social media, first and foremost, if you are not an influencer of any kind where you're generating revenue out of you know social media accounts and profiles, lock it down. Right. Nobody cares. You know, the, you should not have your social media open and exposed for anyone to go and view. 
And there's a couple layers to locking it down too. And it's usually, you can just Google, hey, how do I best lock down TikTok? How do I best lock down Instagram, Facebook? Because there's a lot of different things there. And there's also shutting down the advertising uh, sort of mechanisms where it's listening to you. I mean, everybody's been there where they, they're sitting there talking to a friend or talking to a family member about something they just saw that someone else had or these, you know, really cool new gadget or really cool new, you know, outfit. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, it's on your wall. You know, that's because it's listening to you, right? And you've allowed it to, and you've enabled it to where their advertisers can target things like that. So there's sort of twofold from um, shut things down so that, you know, malicious actors can't go onto your account and profile you. Because if they can get on your profile and it is public, it is scary how much information you don't realize you're putting out there to where somebody could approach you and speak to you like your long lost friends and know so much about you and kind of disarm you a bit and you want to avoid that. And then there's the, the aspect of the personal side of it too, and, or the um, advertiser side of it too, where they're collecting information more than they probably should be. So as the relationship between technology and humanity kind of becomes more and more intertwined, we really need to, and I know we talk about this a lot at Clarence Jobs, we need to remember that the human touch is really essential to maintaining checks and balances, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. So let's talk about, you know, with AI and all of these other things coming in, that evolving nature of cybersecurity threats and the importance of continuous versus periodic testing, which Budabot recommends. The world of cybersecurity, you know, has obviously evolved over the last decade. And, you know, I think companies have evolved quite well along the way as far as investing in their defenses and, you know, ensuring that they have proper resources or, you know, an outsourced security operations team or certainly enough appliances and, you know, such as firewalls and intrusion detection, intrusion prevention, things like that set up for their organizations, which is great. Uh, one of the things that I think is sort of on the cusp of sort of the next level of evolution is offensive cybersecurity, which has been around for quite a while, uh, but it's sort of in periodic testing, penetration testing that's typically done for compliance, I would say is sort of a main necessity. And then, you know, some organizations uh, go beyond that, you know, needing the one or two tests per year for compliance. And, you know, they're deploying a new web application or different um, set of systems and they want to have it, you know, tested after, which again is great. Uh, some form of offensive strategy, uh, even if periodic, is certainly better than none. But with the rise of attacks and, you know, just about every other day we're reading or, or seeing something in the news uh, about some type of breach of varying sizes, but, you know, a breach is a breach and it's not good for any organization. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do uh, to influence organizations of any kind. It doesn't matter which industry you, you work in, if it's private sector, um, you know, for-profit organizations or government agencies, military agencies, or, you know, critical infrastructure, that having a balanced offensive strategy uh, alongside with your defensive strategy is really important. 
You know, you're not doing periodic defense, nor should you do periodic offense. You need to to sort of keep and just like hackers aren't going to go on your schedule, right? And changes in your environment happen all the time. And the instant you have a test done and a change is made in your environment, it renders that test sort of obsolete in a sense. And uh, that's why we recommend having some sort of continuous offensive strategy. That way you can always know with any shifts within your organization, within your managed services, within your technology that you have for whatever your organization does, it's as those changes happen, you know if any type of weaknesses or area of exploit have become open and vulnerable. Sure. And I think, you know, all of this, the moral of the story is that, you know, companies really need to remain agile. Well, and, you know, agencies too, for that matter, (laughs) you know, the government we under, we realize is a a little slow to innovate, but just remaining agile when it comes to cybersecurity and, making sure that all of your defenses are in place, understanding sort of, as we talked about in the beginning, the psychology of some of these criminal hackers, especially when you mentioned critical infrastructure. I mean, that can be detrimental to our society. And so kind of taking it from that large scale, I wanted, as we close out this podcast, to talk about it from more of a user perspective and kind of bring something recent to talk about that. So I I know that at the end of last year, there were some reporting that if you have an iPhone, it did the iOS update. The new feature called Name Drop was defaulted to on which allows the sharing of your contact info just by bringing your phones close together. And so I know that police departments were warning of the risks that um, it might pose to those unaware about the feature. Um, So let's bust that myth, but maybe talk about the populations that might still be vulnerable to issues with that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it it definitely, I I was surprised to see how, how much that issue scaled across different news segments and sort of the panic behind it. Uh, you know, some of it with merit, but some of it, I think social media played a role in amplifying that uh, maybe a little bit further along than it needed to be. But there are still issues with sort of that, you know, name drop, airdrop, things of that nature, or, um, you know, any type of near field communication and, and things of that nature where there's, there's still some vulnerability there, but to sort of bust the myth that if you had, if you did the update and, you know, you had name drop default enabled, there was the fear that somebody could just walk right by you and steal all of your data, which isn't the case Uh, there, you know, Apple did deploy a, a couple steps, you know, within that so that if you got close enough and you have to get really close to if not touching the phones, you know, you're pretty much right there. But at that point, you also have to accept the transfer. So there's that extra step there. But for the overly paranoid, like myself and our team, there's there's things about name drop and airdrop that we just recommend if you're not using it, disable it. You know, there's things that if you're, if you're in a public place um, at a mall, airport, anywhere where it's somewhat densely populated and you turn on airdrop, just take a look at all the different devices nearby that pop up and it, you know your name's going to pop up on other people's phones, yours going to be there now. It doesn't mean you're going to just all of a sudden default transfer information. But again, that's ways for people to learn a little bit about you and, and 
criminal hackers use that. They'll go and they'll they'll see a picture or they'll get a first name and that's information they didn't have on you. It's also why we recommend changing the default naming of your personal devices to not use your name. A big thanks to Luke for joining me on the podcast. His team of professional hackers and security experts craft custom solutions utilizing true-to-life attack vectors to preemptively identify and mitigate potential security breaches. So as AI has become more and more advanced, who is left to protect us from descending into a robot takeover? Although these kinds of sci-fi movies can seem far away, we must recognize that the more advanced technology gets, the more we will need to rely on humans to ensure the regulations of our cybersecurity. So to find your next cybersecurity career or advice on how to get there, visit clearancejobs.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of ClearCast. Hit the subscribe button and share this episode with your friends and colleagues. For more security clearance updates and national security career advice, subscribe to news.clearancejobs.com. If you have an active clearance, refresh your profile and search cleared careers at clearancejobs.com.